Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this short Freed Bite edition, I am going to talk about incompatibilism, compatibilism, and question-begging arguments. Enjoy the show. It's almost ubiquitous in conversations about freedom of the will for people to be, well, just confused. And and rightfully so. It's a challenging topic and challenges our assumptions and makes us think about our ideas and concepts and how we define and understand terms. Many people will hold to what's called an incompatibilist position. And by the way, I've done a lot of, uh, of work on this, so please go and see the blog and my previous podcast episodes or my YouTube uh, playlist on this. So if, if you want more information about incompatibilism and compatibilism and the, and the full debate. But I have a specific reason for this episode, something very, very, uh, very, very specific. That is, those who, those who uh, take an incompatibilist position, that they, they think that some act being determined and some, that same act being free are in principle, in conflict with each other. That, that something simply cannot be, categorically cannot be, it, it is a contradiction to be determined and free in any significant sense. Thus, they'll, they'll take the word free and conceptualize it to mean not determined. Or they'll take the word determined and conceptualize it to mean not free, such that anytime anyone uses the term free or free will or anything like that, they just hear not determined. They just think that that is definitionally what it necessarily must mean. Now, this is all fine and well, except for... The debate just is about the nature of free will and what it means to be determined or free sufficient for responsibility. So when you're in that debate, you just can't beg the question, especially when that person comes up against those who hold to compatibilist positions uh, and concepts of freedom that do not think that something like being determined is, in principle, contradictory to that same thing being significantly free. In that discussion, the incompatibilist must not presume their position on pain of a question-begging fallacy or try and push their conceptualizations through uh, via a definitional fiat on pain of a special pleading fallacy, but rather they must give independent reasons for why their position is the case and the compatibilist ought to abandon their position and believe the incompatibilist position to be the correct one. Further, when the incompatibilist wants to try and make a negative case against compatibilism, 
That is, they, they're, they're not just defending incompatibilism. They're now going on the offensive. They're going on the assault against compatibilism. They must do it via one of two methods. That is, either a valid external critique or a valid internal critique. Now, for an external critique to be valid, they must be able to give an independent reason to believe their premises to be true and are more probably the case than the compatibilist position. By the way, th this internal external critique, this is true for any argument. This is not some special thing for incompatibilism, compatibilism. In any time you are going on an offensive against a position, you can either do it via an external critique or via an internal critique. Now, they can still they still cannot engage in question begging fallacies nor special pleading fallacies. They cannot, for example, say that compatibilism is false because we know that something being determined means that there isn't a real categorical ability to choose other than what we choose and thus not free. Why? Well, because that just is something that is only true if the incompatibilist position is true. In effect, it's to argue if incompatibilism is true, then categorical ability is needed for freedom. And since categorical ability is needed for freedom, then compatibilism is false and thus incompatibilism is true. But notice how that's simply to argue in a circle where the conclusion is needed to be assumed in order to fuel the premises to the same conclusion that was assumed. They therefore must give independent reasons, that is standalone reasons that don't rely on the conclusion or don't rely on any position, uh, assumption of a premise within their own system, that they do not rely on the presumption of incompatibilism to be true in order for the external critique to be valid. I'm going to give an example of this here in a moment to try to flesh that out. Similarly, for an internal critique to be valid, the incompatibilist must use only concepts available to them from within the compatibilist position and only things that the compatibilist would affirm. This is because the form of this kind of argumentation, what's called a reductio ad absurdum or a, a reduction to the absurd, is to argue that given some view being true, it logically entails within itself logical incoherencies or contradictions. This case cannot be made if the person argues from the view itself plus some other propositions or principles not affirmed or even flat out denied by the view that they're trying to do an internal critique of. I'll give an example from another theological discussion where this happens as an analogy and then return and wrap up the free will discussion. Okay, <clears throat> so as an example, commonly in arguments between Reformed and Covenant and Reformed or, or Covenant theology, uh, the, the accusation that Covenant theology is quote-unquote replacement theology will be levied against that view. The charge is based on the idea that some that, that some people have of covenant theology that the church replaces the nation of Israel as if that is the covenant view. For those unfamiliar with covenant theology, the view does not actually make that case, but rather the idea is that the church is the full blossoming of Israel itself. Here, I'm not going to go into the biblical case for, for such a position or defend why I believe that it's a biblical view. But it should be simply noted that covenant theology does not see the church and Israel as two ontologically distinct entities. 
but rather that the promises of God to Abraham and to the nation of Israel are all yes and amen in Christ, and that in Christ the promises are fulfilled as he is the seed of Abraham, the promised heir, the son of David, to which the promises were made. And as such, Gentiles who were formerly uh, foreigners to the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the promise are now brought near in Christ as fellow citizens and co-heirs, uh, co-heirs as a holy nation or a royal, royal priesthood. For more on this, you can see Galatians 3, Ephesians 2, and 1 Peter 2, as well as others. They would view the olive tree in Romans 11 as one tree, nourished by the root, which is Christ, to which the individual branches cut off or grafted in just are unbelieving Jews and believing Gentiles, respectively, but that there is but one and only one olive tree. It's not that there was one tree and that has been replaced by a different tree. Now, again, I'm not going to go into defending that position as biblical or, or, or anything like that, but that's just, that's just a statement of what the position is. Now, on a dispensational view, which is typically the ones who are levying this replacement theology accusation, within dispensationalism, there is a hard ontological distinction between national Israel and the church. For the dispensationalists, the belief is that the promises that were given to Israel and uh, are for them only, and that these are not transferred to the ecclesia, the other people of God, even though some dispensationalists think that there is some application of them or benefit of them for the church. Thus, they believe that the nation of Israel still has promises made to them exclusively that have yet to be fulfilled. Typically, the land promises are what is, the, is in focus. And as such, that these must be fulfilled in and for Israel, and that these are not fulfilled in Christ for the church already. Now, with those two systems briefly stated, why is this relevant to the prior discussion about internal and external critiques and the question begging or special pleading fallacies? Well, often the charge that covenant theology is quote-unquote replacement theology just is, again, levied by these dispensationalists. This is because within the dispensationalist system, the nation of Israel and the church just are ontologically distinct peoples of God. So when they hear covenant theologians say that the church just is true Israel, they then filter that through their theological commitments and as such, they conceptualize it as a replacement because on their view, for the church to be the true Israel, since they believe that they're distinct entities, it would have to supplant the nation of Israel in the program of God. So they then project that on covenant theology, uh, that, that ontological distinction, and then they call it replacement. However, we can see that if we confine ourselves to what covenant theology views about Israel and the church, how they conceptualize it, well, it's impossible that this is a replacement in any meaningful sense. Now, we may say it's a replacement in the sense that a teenager replaces their childhood self or an adult replaces their teenage self when they turn 18, get to enjoy the inheritance that was promised to them as a child. I guess it could be that kind of replacement, but then that's just not a criticism. No one, no one thinks of that as a, as a bad replacement. But that's just, again, that's just not replacement in the sense that the dispensationalist means it, where one entity usurps the place of another entity. 
Therefore, the charge of replacement becomes an invalid internal critique because it does not rely on the concepts internal to covenant theology itself. And it begs the question of the position that is not only outside of covenant theology, but one that covenant theology would actually disagree with, namely the hard ontological distinction between the two peoples of God. And yet, this would also fail as an external critique because it relies on the assumption of that very hard ontological distinction without giving independent reason for why it's true, and as such, it merely begs the question of the dispensationalist understanding to argue toward the conclusion of the truth of dispensationalism. Now, here we can look back at the free will uh, and see a parity between this failed critique of covenant theology by dispensationalists with the kind of critiques offered by incompatibilists. Often the incompatibilists, again, will claim that compatibilists make God the, you know, quote unquote, author of evil, or it makes the agent a puppet or a robot. However, this is only the case precisely because they think that if some action is determined, then it is in principle not free. That in principle, if it's determined, it cannot be free. As such, they have the presumption of a principled incompatibility between an act being determined and free. But that just is the presumption of incompatibilism. Thus, the objection that if incompatibilism, sorry, the objection that if compatibilism were true, then, some, then, then someone who was determined would therefore be a robot or a puppet or not responsible, uh, that would actually make, uh, that it would make God the author of evil is, is to make this type of argument. It's to say, okay, let's assume for the sake of argument that compatibilism is true because we want to run an internal critique. But also incompatibilism is true because if something is determined, then it's not free. Well, because P1 and P1 are, two, are contradictory, therefore compatibilism entails a contradiction. Therefore, incompatibilism is true. Well, that's basically the argument that's being made. But notice here that this is a failed internal critique because in order for the argument to be pushed through, premise two is to bring in an assumption that does not fall within the position of compatibilism. Thus, it cannot validly show that compatibilism, qua compatibilism, properly understood, entails a contradiction. This also fails as an external critique, however, since not only would we not have independent reasons to believe the second premise, that, that in principle something being determined is, is in contradiction with something being free, but it also begs the question of the very conclusion that it's trying to support. So this doesn't work as a valid internal or external critique. So in conclusion, while there are interesting reasons to accept incompatibilism or to reject compatibilism, I, I mean, I think ultimately they fail, but there, there, are, there are robust uh, points to be made in this discussion. And this episode should in no way be read as me claiming that all incompatibilists are guilty of begging the question or special pleading and thus present failed internal external critiques, right? There are, there are, there are lots of incompatibilists that don't do that. The pro but the problem is that this is absolutely pervasive 
in many of the t- attempts by incompatibilists to uh, try and reject compatibilism or compatibilistic views like that of reformed theology. And I hope that this is helpful as an analysis of the discourse and common arguments that occur in these discussions. So thank you so much. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to reach out to me. You can email uh, me at freedthinkerpodcast.gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. You can join the YouTube uh, Facebook group, subscribe there, click the bell, get updates on new new content out uh, at the YouTube channel, or... Uh, you, you can head on over to the group page uh, on Facebook, the Freethinker group page on Facebook, and join in the discussion. As always, if you uh, appreciate this content and would like to become a, a sponsor or a patron, head on over uh, to the blog, click the Become a Sponsor link, or you can visit me on Patreon. Again, thank you so much. Good night, and God bless.